Um, so here's what I am, just if I can minimize this. Um, well, I've said some of this, use the chat function, ask questions. We'll do uh, some uh, small group activities just to practice some of the ideas. Um, you should have gotten handouts emailed to you and we'll let you know. There's not a whole lot of them that you're gonna need today, but we'll let you know um, when we'll be looking at them or using them, but you should have all the slides. And then there's a whole bunch of other things I sent to David. Some of them are just for your reference and some of them we'll be using and we'll be taking breaks. Um, so if you're anything like me sitting on Zoom, sometimes you get restless or have an urge to multitask or get up and do something. So um, we'll have breaks to do that and, and um, you know just make this work for you however you can. So what we're gonna do during this training is I'm gonna describe the model I'm gonna explain the various team members' roles and responsibilities. Um, we're gonna just talk about what are the things that work in CTI, all the effective sort of strategies and interventions. Um, and then I'll contrast it with traditional services like case management services or street outreach or those kinds of things, because certainly there's a lot in common, but there's also some things that are different about it. And we'll talk about how a team meeting is run in CTI. And we'll talk also about the various documents um, that are part of the CTI model that um, are available to use um, if people find them helpful. And, and then we'll just you know, think about how to use elements of CTI uh, for your program or your role. And what I hope is that when you're done with this, um, that you leave with something useful. Um, so homelessness, I, I, I just found these uh, images and I think, you know, for me, they resonated, um, but being homeless is like living in a post-apocalyptic world. You're just on the outskirts of society. And I'm sure those of you who work with homeless people um, have a feel for this. It's like people are just out in the world um, coping with uncertainty and the elements and stigma and you know all these very, very hard things. And that and homeless people are not the problem. They are a result of the problem that we have um, in our world, in our country, in our on our towns. And it's obviously very complicated. Um, but you know, I'm of the belief that um, you know that we um, are working with homeless people in the most respectful way that we can, because they are already used to being seen as a problem. And so I don't want them to pick any of that up from me. I want it to sort of be the opposite um, of that. And, and, and I'm imagining that's how a lot of you feel as well. So I'm going to do a, a short video that I found about street outreach and it's from Australia. Um, so it's similar kind of work though. And I thought it was a good video and it's just about five minutes long. So I thought we could do is just watch it. And, and then maybe in the chat function when we're done, um, say like, what, you know, what do you agree with or resonate? Um, maybe there's things that you don't. And then what I'd like to talk about what CTI has in common with that and what is different just to kind of have like a little bit of, of context. And I think it was a, you know, kind of an interesting video. 
So yes, yeah, so here's the points of view from the, the, the video, um, building rapport and trust. And you can't put a time limit on that. But in CTI, once we feel like we have rapport and trust, we want to um, really jump into working together in a pretty um, um, you know, assertive kind of vigorous um, way. Um, being present and consistent uh, to build relationship, that's certainly important and being respectful and checking on basic needs and starting with small goals is also really compatible with CTI. So even though um, that might not be the only thing that we're trying to do or want to do, or even that our clients want to do, that's always a good thing to, to start on. You wanna see, is there anything you could do right away to make life easier, even if life is um, very hard? that you know, we can, there may be things that we can do to improve their quality of life even a little bit. So this is basically what CTI is. It's a, an evidence-based service. It is designed to help people through some kind of critical transition. It's phase-based, um, so there's three different phases. It's time-limited and it's implemented during this critical time period. And it's implemented by case managers who work in the communities where people live. So when I say case managers, when I'm, you know, this isn't, I'm not saying only case managers, it could be, you know, like I'm a social worker, it could be, we've had on our team, we've had um, psychiatrists who spent some time doing it with us. We have peer support specialists doing it. Um, we have, you know, housing specialists who are, um, you know, kind of, um, that's just their specialty, they're um, qualified to do that. Um, and so there could be a variety of different kinds of people who do the work, but here the emphasis is that we work in the communities where people live. So we go to where they are, whether that's you know McDonald's, the shelter outside. And, and sometimes you know meeting in an office is really um, helpful as well. So there's a place for all of that. And the goal is to improve stability and well-being, continuity of care and community integration by securely linking people to networks of support. So this linking process is a really big part of CTI. So the website called uh, the Center for Advancement of CTI is called CACTI. And I've put that link at the, um, toward the end of this PowerPoint. Um, that is a website um, where CTI was developed by um, sort of a group of people who work at uh, the School of Social Work. Um, oh shoot, I'm blanking at which school of social work it is, but it's in New York City. Um, and they have a website with a lot of the resources that some of the resources that I've shared and they're kind of a hub. And there's a, um, uh, like an international um, group, you know, kind of like a, uh, a group of people who can, um, network with each other around CTI. So this is their definition of CTI, time-limited evidence-based practice that mobilizes support for society's most vulnerable individuals during periods of transition. It facilitates community integration and continuity of care by ensuring that a person has ties to their community and support systems during these critical periods. It's been applied with veterans, people with mental illness, people who've been homeless or in prison, many other groups, um, and it's been widely used on four um, continents. 
So why would you do CTI as opposed to something else? Um, so the challenges facing individuals in critical transition times can be overwhelming. So people can have a complex interaction of biopsychosocial needs that have resulted in people being more vulnerable during these transitions. Social connections are frequently lacking or um, very thin or minimal. The service system um, is difficult and confusing and sometimes really demoralizing to uh, figure out. Appropriate resources may be limited and the traditional service models that we have for um, people are usually not responsive to those kinds of needs. And if you think about, um, I was trying to think of an analogy for um, a, a critical transition, but if you've ever been through one yourself, like if you ever had to move or if you ever, you know, had, you know, a baby or even a new um, puppy um, or, um, you know, some like, or, you know, new, like going to school, like anytime you have a new transition in your life or something's changed, especially when it's a really challenging change, like somebody, you know, is very ill in your life or something, it takes a lot to figure out how to cope with that. And you may not know all the resources that may be available. It may be that you've stretched out your support system or they're not really able to help to the degree that you need them to, or you don't even want to ask. Um, and that it can be, uh, can have like a, an emotional impact on people and might not sleep as well and may get more stressed out. And it's just, a, can be a lot to deal with. So if it's difficult, you know, for, for us to go through transitional times that are um, stressful or overwhelming, you know, certainly for people who um, have very few resources and also have other things like medical problems, mental health conditions, um, addiction, it's, it's even more challenging. So the CTI principles and program constructs are focused on the very specific and most pressing needs of the individual. There is a sort of outreach and rapid engagement. So again, that is a little bit different than maybe a traditional street outreach approach or even uh, case management um, because the goal is to do rapid engagement. Although if you can't do rapid engagement, there is still a way to have CTI work. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And CTI is client friendly with engagement strategies and needs um, that are complementary um, to the population. Um, and it has, um, it works. It looks like, you know, when you study this, uh, people who have had CTI navigate these uh, transitions better than people who have just other um, treatment as usual services. And those services may be very, very good um, and helpful. So it's not saying that they're not, but CTI can have a very specific and effective um, role with clients going through transitions. So there's a variety of kinds of critical transitions that we can think about. Getting out of jail or getting out of prison. Uh, discharging from a psychiatric hospitalization can be another difficult transition. And also often what happens is people get out of the hospital, their care can fall through the cracks, you know, so they can go, you know, a hospitalization is very, very stressful. Often it's a traumatizing or a negative experience, not always, but often it is. And then what happens is people get out and they, they don't go to their follow-up appointment, they can't afford their medication, they don't know where to get their medication, 
They're so upset by the whole experience and they don't even want to follow up. Um, and so, you know, that's a critical transition. Uh, people leaving uh, domestic violence situations, that's certainly a very difficult um, transition around which people can use support. Homeless families and homeless individuals. Um, first episode, psychosis is another population that CTI has worked with and youth aging out of foster care, enormously difficult transition. Um, if any of you have um, uh, older children like I do, uh, just aging out of being in a family is hard, even when your family is really supportive, just transitioning to adult life is really, really hard. And if you're aging out of foster care, you're going to lose a lot of those supports. And, and it's not like they magically became capable, you know, competent um, um, adults with, with good networks. So here's the components. Um, there is um, a transition. Um, there are three phases and each one is three months long. Although that is very flexible, it's possible to do um, a brief CTI for six months. Some people have uh, programs where they have a two year because that fits in with another element of their programming. So there's different ways to think about the phases, but the important thing is there that it is phase-based. It's focused on priorities and there is this time limit um, that is can be very challenging, but there are some benefits um, and some good reasons to have this time limit and try to work within that framework. And it's very heavily based on community linking, just lots and lots, just helping people just get linked to as many things as possible and have those links be solid and sustainable um, so that when CTI is done, they have some other things that they're connected to that can be supportive um, in the long run. There's decreasing intensity over time and there's a teamwork um, approach and, and the, um, one of the days, I think next week, we'll talk a lot more about how a team functions in CTI. So here's the component. This is how it looks like over time. So pre-CTI means this is before the transition. So this can be the time where you're uh, first meeting people, you're telling them about CTI, you're forming a bit of a relationship before this transition. So if that's in a hospital, that might mean you go visit them up on the inpatient unit or you go visit them in jail or you visit them where they are, you know, where they're homeless in a shelter or outside or couch surfing or whatever. And you um, tell them about CTI, understand what their needs are, form, you know, a therapeutic relationship so that they um, are ready to go with you and that they say, yes, I want to do CTI and you can start to make plans for it. That's, that part is called pre-CTI. And there's some flexible, there's some flexible time around pre-CTI. Um, and so, you know, that's one part that can be a little more um, flexible about how long it takes. And then there's this transition. And I want to talk about one other kind of transition that, that we use that I, I didn't see on that slide, but I think it is a, a case can be made for this. Um, that if you have homeless people who are entirely disconnected from the system, they don't have treatment, they don't have medical care, they don't have benefits, 
they're not connected to homeless services um, or you know whatever kinds of informal things that are in your community, then I think you can think about a critical transition as being helping somebody who is entirely disconnected to get connected. Because often, you know, people can't access resources like benefits or housing, for example, unless they are linked to the agencies and the providers that can help them obtain those very important things. So if you're just off the radar entirely, um, then you can't get those things. But as soon as you're on the radar of a lot of people, then you have the possibility of connecting to these things that are needed. So that's another way, it's more of a loose kind of transition, but that was certainly something that we did in our community. It's just that it makes the goal, it, it, you know, you think about the transition differently, so you think about the goal differently. Um, so if the transition is from jail to shelter, that's one transition, that goal is different than hospital to home, or it's different than homelessness into housing. And so you, and so one thing that I think is really important in CTI is to know what is, what's a transition and what's your goal? Like, what do you wanna get from um, and to with the individual that you're working with? And so these are the phases. Phase one is this kind of first phase transition. And phase two is called tryout because the idea there is that people are now in, connected to things that can be ongoing supports for them. And you want to see like, how are those connections working? Um, is your client really able to engage with them and benefit from them? Is there something that's falling through the cracks? And CTI is still there. So they're really still there to support making these connections um, stick. And then phase three is when you're kind of pulling back and you're really just seeing like, can this person make use of these other ongoing supports um, and, and, and that so CTI can step out and let these other services take over. Now, I understand this looks like super linear and straightforward and often things are a little messier than that, but this is kind of um, the component um, overview. So in in a lot of services, there is this um, focus on all the various um, needs that a person has in their life. So you might not be able to read this here, but here's the individual, you know, and and their worker, whoever it is, and they're they're trying to address problems of substance use, mental health, money, housing, medical needs, community, employment, uh, leisure time, food, nutrition, you know, family. So this is kind of, you know, unfocused and some people would call it comprehensive, but this isn't really a very helpful approach in CTI. And so what we do in CTI is more like this. Um, so there, the person may have many, many needs. It's very likely that they do. But in CTI, what you decide is we are only gonna work on one or two or three things at the most. We're not gonna work on more than three things because it will, it, we will just become too spread out and um, we'll do a better job if we figure out what is the most important thing to our client and work on those things. Um, and I've sometimes worked with people where they only had one goal and sometimes there's three um, and that the better you can stick to that, um, the more effective the service will be. So you don't get too derailed by 
a million other things that are going on, um, but really staying focused on these um, on these goal areas. And it doesn't mean that they can't um, change um, or that one goal might be sort of accomplished or met, and then you might move on to something else, um, or it might be a goal that in, you know you continue to, to work on, um, or your client may say, you know, I don't really want to work on that anymore. I've changed my mind. I want to work on this, but you're just keeping your focus to one or two or three areas. And I'll pause in a minute for questions. So the uh, so this is what it kind of looks like um, over time. Um, so this is kind of showing um, how it it's sort of transitions from CTI involvement to CTI pulling out and having just these other existing community supports. So if the blue is where CTI is involved and the orange is where CTI is no longer working with the client, then what you want to see is increased supports from other places in a person's life. And, um, and so, you know, so that there is a kind of a swapping out in a, in a sense. And again, this looks very linear and we all know it doesn't always work exactly like this. So this is um, the goal um, of how to move through CTI. And so the caseload so size will depend will vary depending on how many clients are in each phase. So if you're just starting out a CTI program, everybody's going to be in phase one. Everybody's going to need, you know, everything. There's going to be a lot to do. Um, and so what will happen is, you know, you can't have, you know, um, a, a really full caseload with everybody in phase one. So it can be helpful to stagger the caseload. And then what will eventually happen is if you've got people in stage one, uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, um, and that way you can have a more um, balanced um, caseload. So the general rule of caseload size is 20 per CTI worker. Um, and of course that depends that, you know, depends on, we could never get quite that high. Like we just ended up only being able to have 15 per worker. Um, so, you know, so you have to individualize it a little bit to your program and what's possible, but you, but it's supposed to be a small caseload because you're working with people um, closely, at, at least in the beginning. And then field worker, field work coordinators and supervisors are a different role in CTI, and I'm going to talk about them um, later, but if you do have those roles on a CTI team, they probably have a smaller caseload. So I was a team lead. My caseload was smaller, but I still had a, you know, I still had a caseload. Um, it was just maybe I had 10 and everybody else had 15. This is kind of what it looks like, um, you know, so you kind of spread things out. And, you know, if you're interested in figuring out the math, <laughs> there is sort of this, uh, you know, here um, that they show, like, if you have a lot of clients in phase, you know, one, um, in, in phase one, that is not going to be sort of equal to having, um, like, having five people in phase one is not the same as having five people in phase three. So you can kind of average it out and figure it out, but I'm not really sure if I understand the math in this little graph, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Um, so focus means that you're limiting the scope of work and you're prioritizing the most important. 
However, it doesn't mean you can't ever do anything else outside of that focus area. You just want to um, make sure you're doing that intentionally and that you know why you're doing it so that you're not just losing your focus. Um, and it also doesn't mean you can't change um, if you need to and if a client wants to. So three months and uh, three phases. So pre-CTI is about initiating a relationship. So that's where there's outreach and engagement. Uh, there's the transition to whatever tr transition is. And during that time, there's a lot of frequent contact with clients. I think in the CTI model, they said something like at least two a month. We were doing um, far more than that because that was what um, our clients needed. And so, you know, usually we were doing a couple of week and the a couple of times a week in the beginning. Um, you know, but that was variable depending on what was going on with the client. But um, you know, we had somebody recently. We I still kind of follow a CTI model even in our new program. And you know, we had somebody recently where we were trying to see him every day for the first week. Um, because he was so incredibly stressed out and we knew he was gonna either end up in the hospital or jail and we were trying to help him um, kind of get over the hump and, and not end up doing that. But, um, and then sometimes, you know, you can do it more just like we'll meet this week and let's schedule a time to meet next week. Um, it's community-based, although we have clients that like to be seen in our office because they feel like there's more privacy and also it's nice to be inside sometimes and be in climate control and on a comfortable chair and, and that sort of thing, but it's mostly a community-based service. And then in phase two, there's less frequent contact um, and all these links that you've you know, made are hopefully getting kind of strengthened over time and then you're doing problem solving as needed. Um, and then in phase three, there's fewer contacts and you're kind of monitoring and supporting um, before CTI ends. Um, and we're getting um, not too far away from a, a, a pausing point here. So the CTI team is made up of three different um, roles um, and these are somewhat flexible. But there's a CTI worker, so that could be anything from, you know, nurse, social worker, peer support specialist, qualified professional, you know, variety of different people who can be qualified to do this. And there's a field coordinator, or there could be a field coordinator uh, function, but somebody is doing that function, um, and that could be a variety of people as well. And then there is, in CTI, there is some clinical supervisor um, role where a licensed professional is available for some support and clinical oversight and, you know, just to be a resource for the team. And this is especially, I think, important if you have people who have um, serious mental illness or if there's, uh, you know, risk, you know, factors to consider and that sort of thing. And sometimes CTI teams can combine the field coordinator, clinical supervisor. So there's a variety of ways to structure it, um, but those are the, the, the various roles. And we'll talk a lot more about this um, next week. So these are kind of the functions. You've got a CTI worker out in the field doing this work and a, uh, somebody doing all this coordination, keeping you know, all the schedules, you know, right, watch, you know, watching documentation, figuring out 
who needs coverage, um, you know, all that kind of agency kinds of stuff, and then a clinical supervisor to provide um, support for uh, the team members. So I'm going to pause here and um, and as you think about this, um, think you know would uh, CTI fit into your organization? In what ways might it fit or maybe not fit? Are there obstacles or challenges both in the your agency or your community or your population? Um, are there things that you're already doing that kind of look like that? So I'm going to just stop sharing for a minute and we can see if there's any comments. And you're also welcome to just um, ask questions. Um, so feel free to put anything in the chat or um, um, or unmute yourself and say anything you would like to. No, so um, good question. Um, when people obtain housing, this is considered phase one of CTI. So if somebody is like a great referral for us where if somebody has been homeless and then it turns out they're gonna get a voucher, you know, or they're gonna move into, you know, whatever housing situation could be, could be an Oxford house, it could be, a, you know, a rooming, you know, it could be a variety of things, but that is considered the transition. And so pre-CTI is meeting with them before and they know you and you know them and you have a relationship and you're gonna work together. And then the transition happens and then there's, then it's phase one because that's when really the rubber meets the road in terms of success in housing where there's a lot of stuff you have to take care of. You have to be able to understand your lease. You have to be able to uh, know how to, um, um, you know, understand all the rules and be able to follow the rules that are gonna be, um, you know, that are gonna ensure that you don't lose your housing and getting along reasonably well with with neighbors and maintaining all the other um you know things in in your life like treatment and 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 also there's like food is entirely different when you're housed you know and cleaning is entirely different when you're housed and sometimes what happens is people get housed and i have a client like this right now she desperately wanted to be housed um, and I'm so grateful that that she is. She's been homeless for um, years, but now that she's housed, it's like after the glow wore off two months later, she's like really sad and she feels isolated and she doesn't know what to do with herself. And um, she's really happy to have her housing. But I can see now there's this whole other challenge in life about you're not in survival mode on the street anymore and you want to build a life and you don't know how to do it, you know, and it's not so easy. Um, and you are more isolated when you get housing than you have been on the street. So there's, you know, there's definitely a lot of challenges. Yeah. So housing is not necessarily considered permanent housing in phase one, or is it? Well, I mean, the hope is that they're in permanent housing. I, you know, um, I mean, that's what we want for all of our um, people. So if they sign a lease, then we are considering it permanent housing. Now we're not a, a permanent supportive housing program. So if people have permanent supported housing, then CTI could actually get involved as a way to sort of bolster the support at the beginning. And then they could just sort of have their permanent supported housing case manager be, you know, sort of their long-term support. Um, but 
you know, people transition to all kinds of housing. They might just have something for, you know, six months because somebody said, um, you can live in my trailer for six months or something like that. So um, obviously our goal is to connect people to permanent, stable, affordable housing. And it's no problem, ask as many questions um, as you want, everybody. Um, I appreciate it. Let's see. Okay, what do you do about double billing? So we're not able to gradually decrease engagement while um, clients increase engagement with a different agency because it would be considered double billing. There has to be a clear time when client is discharged from our agency and enrolled in another agency. So that's, yeah, that's a really, really important question. What we had to do was work with our um, funding agencies and work, and we had to get buy-in from the agencies that kind of oversaw our programs and had funding, you know, and were funding our programs because what we had to do is describe for them this is what the CTI model is. Overlap is part of what we're supposed to be doing. This is the evidence base. And um, this should be a service that can be um, billed um, in addition to other services because that's what it's for. Now, that doesn't mean you know, that you will be able to, to make that happen. Um, but that might be something to do some problem solving around because if you weren't able to do that, then obviously CTI would look really different. And then what you might want to do is figure out what's the best time, if you had to stop, if you had to do we're, we're done and this other thing is beginning and that was the only way to do CTI, then I think what I would be thinking about doing is figuring out like what is the... Um, when's the best time to stop CTI and can we have these other things really ready to go, you know, um, so that, you know, you maximize the benefit of CTI and then, you know, sort of step out when it makes the most sense and you feel that the person is really able to connect with those other services. But I imagine that would be, you know, kind of a tricky you know, problem to figure out, but that's probably what I would do if I was trying to do a CTI model in a situation where it would be double billing. Um, however, sometimes if agencies really buy in um, and there's people who can potentially um, have some decision-making power or influence, it's uh, possible that funding sources, in North Carolina, we got it to where we could bill at the same time as other services. We couldn't do it on the same day, but they could be coexisting. So, but that might be something as a barrier in your, in your program. So it's good to be realistic about the barriers, um, you know, cause there's, uh, there's nothing more frustrating than trying to make something happen that doesn't reflect the reality that you're in. Okay. So now I'm going to talk about just the whole path of a client through CTI from referral to discharge. Um, and then we'll talk about some of them a little bit and some of them that are their own topics we'll talk about on um, at different times. So we're going to go through referral, outreach, or sometimes people call it in-reach, um, engagement, um, assessment of needs, 
service planning, working through the phases, and then discharging and transition. So referral sources for CTI programs um, can be from a variety of places. Um, some CTI programs only take referrals um, from very specific agencies, depending on how narrowly they define their program. So, you know, there's one in um, North Carolina where they were only working with people coming out of the prison. And so that was the only place they were taking referrals. It was the only population. And we took referrals from homelessness programs and from the hospital and from community agencies and law enforcement. So it kind of depends on, you know, your program and, and how you want to define uh, your population. Um, so, so anyway, so knowing your referral sources is part of it because you want to be able to communicate with your referral sources. And usually if I get a referral, then what I'm going to do is tell them I got the referral and plan the next steps and um, stay in contact with them. So uh, if you're doing CTI, I re recommend having a referral form that includes your eligibility criteria. So for us, it had to be somebody who is experiencing uh, homelessness or risk of homelessness. And they had to have some kind of mental health condition that was primary because we weren't working with people with a primary substance use disorder. And they also had to live in one of three counties. Um, and so we put that on there and then also had some other basic information. You know, it's nice to keep your referral um, forms short to so that you get the information you need, but also it's not overly cumbersome for people to fill out. So then you rescreen the referrals um, during a team meeting. This is when we did it. Although all the referrals would come to me as a team leader. So it's kind of good to have one person who's getting all the referrals. So things don't uh, slip through the cracks if there's too many people doing it. And then what you're looking at is, is there a critical transition and what is it? Um, do they have a serious mental health disorder? And on here, it says it doesn't have to be SPMI. And that was because in North Carolina, uh, there are some services where you have to have a severe persistent mental illness in order to be eligible for things such as ACT. And I know you all have a, you know, something else that's sort of similar to um, a sort of community treatment teams. Um, but for, for the CTI program, we often had people who could not get an ACT team because they didn't meet eligibility criteria, criteria because they didn't have a psychotic disorder. Um, and so we had lots and lots of people with post-traumatic stress disorder or um, severe depression, anxiety, or, um, you know, other kinds of things. Um, you know, they could have had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, other mood disorders. Um, so that was a qualification for our program. Um, doesn't have to be um, for, you know, but that was just for us. And that you want to see that they there is a need for engagement efforts and case management because a personal has uh, some kind of functional impairments or there's barriers or there's stressors or they have not been successful in engaging with things through sort of the typical pathways to services in your community. Um, and so, you know, because somebody who, um, you know, is going through a transition, but doesn't have these problems and they may be able to just sort of navigate this okay. So you wanna look for what about this person 
makes them need CTI. Um, and then you want to strategize your next steps with the referral source. So that's gathering any more information that you might need. So we always ask about safety issues, you know, um, for our team, you know, because if this person has been um, dangerous to others in the past, or, you know, I got a referral recently for somebody who was sort of kicked out of his act team because he had been aggressive to one of their staff. And that doesn't mean I absolutely would not work with him, but it does mean that I want to think about how and where I'm going to meet with him. Um, and then you want to find out what might be barriers to um, engagement, because sometimes it will work better to just, you know, you may just be able to call the person and arrange a meeting, or it might be that your referral says, refer, referral sources, it would be better if you came here and met with them here so that we can introduce you because they really trust us and they're kind of skeptical of these other services. And so can you come here? And we would try to do that. And then also if the referral source has a, a sense of what is their most pressing need, you know, what are the most important things to understand about the person? So that's what we do in the referral stage and it's kind of in the model to, to um, start out. And then the pre-CTI phase is when you're doing this engagement, um, beginning outreach as soon as possible. CTI is not a great service to have it be like, okay, they're going to be on our wait list. We'll, you know, we'll catch up with you next month. Um, and, and sometimes that's inevitable. Um, however, the principle of CTI is to do rapid engagement, to really try to meet with the person and engage with them as quickly as possible. So then you're just arranging for a meet and greet with the person, go where they feel safe and comfortable, and you may need to gradually establish trust. So there's that balance there of rapid engagement and also recognizing that the reality may be that you can't rush this client and, um, and, and if you wanna support them, you have to sort of move at their pace, but we just don't wanna be moving slower than we, than we need to. And then planning for next steps. So I think this is um, really important and I'm sure many of you will agree that just because you meet with a person does not guarantee that you're going to be able to find them again. Um, so it can be helpful to go ahead and plan the next visit to find out what is the best way to stay in touch with you. If I can't reach you on your phone, is there any place that it's okay for me to come and just see if you're there? Um, and is there anybody um, else that you think I should call if I can't reach you? Because notoriously people lose their phones, don't have their voicemail set up, their voicemail's full, you know, they're, they're transient, they're not staying in the same place, they're not used to staying in touch with people. Um, and so figuring out how to stay in touch with people um, is an important part of the beginning process. So that's, uh, so we've got referral, that's pre-CTI. And then we're thinking about um, our relationship with the person um, right away. So um, you wanna avoid use of jargon and acronyms because that's um, just frustrating and can be a, a barrier to people. So you wanna just try to use as plain language as possible. Explain what CTI is so they, so they understand what it is that you're doing, like who you are and what you're kind of selling them. Um, it can be helpful to give, it could just be a business card or we had a little flyer 
but we also had a little um, an information sheet um, that we gave to clients that was really nice. It was just like a half a page thing and it basically just said, you know, this is CTI, um, here's the people on the team and our phone numbers, um, this is what you can expect of us and this is what we hope to expect from you and that what we hope to expect from them is please stay in touch with us and um, we may not be able to solve all these problems right away, but we will be working hard with them to, um, you know, help them meet their goals. And then also um, during pre-CTI, you can also do an assessment of their needs. And we'll talk about that um, again. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more soon too. And then you want to just start working together immediately because in CTI, the clock is ticking. And I've also found that even though there are people who want to engage sort of gradually and build trust, so there's a lot of people who just get, feel like everything takes forever. And it's really nice to have somebody say, all right, let's figure out what we can do. I'll, you know, on Thursday, we're going to go do this thing. And if you can demonstrate that you have something useful to offer um, and that, you know, there's, you know, a problem that they have that you can help them solve, that is a great thing to start with. Um, because if you can offer a solution to a problem right away, it's going to um, help them feel like you are worthwhile <laughs> to connect to. Um, and so what I always do when I'm assessing these, because often there's a lot of things that are complicated and not easy and not quick, but I always look for some things that I can do quickly um, right away. And then in relationship building, this is kind of some of the stuff we saw in this um, street outreach. And I imagine probably a lot of you could give the talk about this slide. Um, we're trying to be authentic and respectful and be really clear about your role and what you can do and what you can't do. Um, Cause you don't wanna promise the world um, just because you have a real big heart for helping this person, you know, so you kind of have to be um, realistic and clear. And the other thing is sometimes people have a variety of um, agencies or people that they're interacting with. And so it's kind of nice to be able to know exactly who you are and what you do, um, because, you know, it can be confusing if you just show up as another just kind of helpful person, but just to, you know, just be as clear as possible um, and be easy to reach and stay in touch. Um, and then we want to have this attitude of partnership and saying like, we're going to do this together. These are the problems that we will kind of work on together in mutual responsibility because, you know, that is how you're going to have to do it. You're not, there will be things that you can do for your person, but mostly you're going to be doing things together with them. Um, and um, I think not giving advice is, is probably a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, advice is super easy to come by if you're homeless or if you've got lots of uh, problems in your life um, and you know it's, it's not that helpful. I mean, honestly, most of us don't really want advice unless we specifically ask for it. Um, and then, and it's also good as you go along to invite feedback to say, well, how is this for you? Um, just, you know, does what I say make sense? Do you think this sounds, you know, usually what I'll do is say, so this is the service. You know, I don't want to be, people kind of sometimes not want to talk to me if I, if I say, 
hey, I'm calling, you got referred to the program, I wanna do an assessment. So more what I'll say is, hey, I talked with so-and-so, they called me because they think the service we have might be helpful for you. And so I wanted to see if I could tell you about it and then you could see what you think. And so that is kind of a non-threatening way to introduce um, a service and you're not sort of assuming that they're gonna go for it. And you're just saying, hey, will you let me just tell you this little part of it? And then, you know, they can say, well, you know, I don't know let me think about it or yeah, that sounds good or, or whatever. Um, and then invite feedback along. And I think this is a good thing to do along the way. Say, hey, how are things going? How are you feeling about how our team is helping you? Or is there any suggestions that you have for me about what would be more helpful? And I sometimes forget to do that. But anytime I remember, I'm always glad um, because usually people do have something to say um, that is helpful to incorporate. Um, and then the other thing in relationship building, especially at the beginning, is people who are under these stressful circumstances just run out of energy for coping. So this isn't just, this is true for everybody. I think this is research-based that we kind of have a limited amount of internal resources to cope with um, adversity and we get depleted. And then as soon as we're depleted, we don't cope well and we have to build up again. So when you're talking with people who are just endlessly dealing with stress, you have to kind of remember that they just might not have the energy to keep coping with all these things. And that if you're doing some things with them, it's gonna be helpful. Um, you're gonna add your uh, emotional reserves to, to theirs and, and just that being alongside with somebody and being, um, you know, emotionally supportive and practically helpful and non-judgmental is and, and just present is going to be um, so um, welcome. So we're going to do a, a small group um, activity and um, I'm going to go through it all and then I'll see if there's questions about it and then we'll break into groups. So um, here's a little Cartoons. So some people really hate role play. Some people get into them. So, um, so I'm encouraging you to just kind of give it a try. Throw yourself in. This is just a chance to like do things in um, a way that is perfectly uh, like a welcoming, welcoming place to just try it out and and be very not perfect about it. Um, but it can just. But they can't be helpful. So here's the, here's the client situation. So in your small group, you would have somebody be Linda, and then you would have other people being a CTI worker and maybe take turns in, and uh, interacting with her um, or um, have some people maybe just observe and, and uh, notice what's, what's going well or add questions. So Linda has been living in her tent in the woods for about a year with her cat. She tends to be disheveled and dirty and struggles to get her basic needs met each day. She panhandles for money at times, um, but that's all. That's all she has for money. There are lots of other homeless people in town with whom she's friends. Um, some are supportive and some of them are not supportive and are exploitive or take advantage of her. And she has a hard time saying no to people. Uh, she is engaged with some community agencies for homeless individuals, and she's very attached to her cat. So that's kind of part of her situation. So health-wise, she has bipolar disorder, and sometimes there's episodes of depression, 
And then sometimes she has episodes of mania. And like a lot of people, she doesn't really mind how she feels when she's manic. Um, but when she's depressed, she feels very unhappy and distressed. Um, and she's been very sporadically um, engaged in treatment for this. Sometimes she also uses drugs and she smokes at least a pack of cigarettes a day and she has a constant cough. She wants a home and wants disability benefits and has a pending claim with her attorney, but her attorney does barely knows her, okay? So this is the, um, so this is a client situation and obviously this isn't a very full picture. So if you're doing a role play, just improvise and do it kind of however you want, all right? So the, the goal of this intervention is to um, understand her situation and get her perspective, how she views things and get an idea of what is most on her mind. Like what is you know, her most pressing needs, you know, according to her. And then the only thing that you wanna do in this engagement part is just to develop rapport by showing that you're listening to her and taking her seriously and trying to understand. So there's no need in, in this thing to um, solve any problems or do anything. Um, I mean, if it comes up, that's, that's totally fine, but really the, the goal at the beginning is to just make sure that you're really understanding a person and that they believe that you do understand them by how you um, are interacting. And so, so the idea is to um, introduce yourself, say, hey, can you have, can we, you know, talk about this? This is a good time. I'd like to tell you about our program. Um, you don't even have to say TTI if you don't want to, but, and then just asking the client to share something about your situation, what's on their mind, just get the conversation started. And then you're just going to be using active listening and questions. Um, and we do not want the Lindas to make this super hard <laughs> for, for us um, on the, you know, on the other side. Um, and then at the end, you could say something about the, you know, your program and, and you know, see if they're interested in learning about it. And maybe what we'll do is I'll send little um, messages to everybody to let you know when to get to that part. And then at the end, you can talk with each other about how do you think it went? You know, what was it like for the client? What was it like for the staff? And, um, just um, you know, talk it over. So I'm thinking all together it'll probably take about 15 minutes. Okay. So the next, so we've gone through referral, um, pre-CTI engagement, um, and now then we would be doing the face plan. And the face plan is a whole other thing that we're going to do on a different day, and we're going to just practice doing that. And I'll pass out. A, you know, a couple of examples, um, but a phase plan is basically, um, and they're called phase plans in CTI, not treatment plans, um, but, you know, people sometimes are, um, have to use the forms that they have to use, but I really like the CTI phase plan because it's super, super simple, so it doesn't feel like a barrier. Um, wait a minute, let me see if I, okay. Um, it doesn't feel like a barrier to um, engagement to end up having this big, long, comprehensive treatment plan covering every single area of a person's life, which a lot of our services have in North Carolina, you know, a person-centered plan where it's supposed to be very comprehensive and 
there's objectives and goals and who's doing what and all that. And the face plan is a really nice, simple, um, specific um, plan. And then this is when you just pick one or two or three goals. And then under the goals are very specific strategies. It's almost like a to-do list. It's like, what are all the things that we're gonna do related um, to this goal? Um, and it's a little bit about, this is not really, um, if we think about like housing first and, and all that stuff, these are not, um, these are goals related to outcomes, not like what the client should be doing better or doing differently. It's really like, what can we connect you with that's gonna help you um, get to where you wanna be? And you do it with the client, you do it together. So then you're in CTI for nine months. So then you're having sort of ongoing assessment because you never know if something new is going to, you know, um, be, you know, happening. There is new goals at phase two and three. Sometimes a goal is carried over, um, but you're kind of reformulating a phase plan and think about, okay, three months is over. What are we doing next? You're of course keeping this um, relationship going, and at the same time. You're also linking people to other relationships that you want them to have, you know, so you don't want to be everything and all things to this person because really you're working on them having connections and relationships to other um, people, agencies, whatever in their life that will um, be ongoing resources for them. And then just kind of solving problems around along the way. So this is what happens for the bulk of CTI. Um, and then there's discharge planning. So during phase three, there's this final transfer of care and discharge from the CTI program. And um, of course, in a sense, you're thinking about discharge almost from the very beginning. Um, but during phase three, this is when you say, okay, we're in phase three, this is our last three months to work together, whatever it is, and let's figure out everything else we need to do and let's make sure everything you've got's really solid and, and um, you know, where it needs to be. And so then you do a transition plan and you wanna have final meetings with their support system. So um, that doesn't have to be a meeting, it could be phone calls, but usually what that means is I'm getting back in touch with the person who originally referred them. I'm making sure that everybody who's working with them knows that CTI is gonna be ending soon. Um, and if there's any lingering things that you know, that I've been doing to make sure that they know that um, those things will end. Um, and then you are gonna have a final meeting with um, a client. Um, sometimes CTI is big, the CTI model is kind of big on celebrations. I find that sometimes that's appropriate and sometimes it isn't. It really sort of just depends on the client um, situation, but certainly you wanna kind of review progress and um, have a nice kind of personal ending to um, the, the work. Um, and so, you know, I tell clients still have my phone number and all that. It's not that they can never reach out again, but basically they know that we're done working together. So I wanted to say a little bit about unexpected disengagement because this is when, you know, you're not done with CTI and your client has, you know, bailed on you in some way or you can't reach them. Um, and so you wanna talk with your team about what to do about that. So sometimes people are, 
you know, lost or just out of the area. So if they are, then obviously you're not going to be working with them. So, you know, that can be good to try to figure out. Um, have something uh, about their circumstances changed? Like what if all of a sudden their grandmother said, hey, I live two towns over, but you can come live with me and I have a job that you can, you know, my boss will hire you. Um, that's completely different change in circumstances or somebody ends up going to an assisted living facility or, or a long-term hospitalization or something has changed. Um, sometimes you have to figure out like, there's something that we're not doing that we could be doing to keep this person connected to us. Um, why have they refused? Why are they declining services? Is there another approach that we can use? And then a lot of times what would happen is we'd say, okay, we cannot reach this person. How long should we wait? You know, and we'd say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna give them a month. We're gonna call them, you know, every week and or try to see them. And if we don't talk with, if we can't connect with them after that long, we'll discharge them from CTI because it's not very helpful to have um, cases, you know, people on your caseload when you can't reach them or can't work with them. Um, because then you kind of have this lingering sense of responsibility for working with them, but you're not actually working with them. And then that's kind of taking up space on a caseload for somebody else that might um, benefit from, from your support. Um, so let's pause there. Um, and well, I'm going to keep going because we've just talked. Uh, does anybody have any, um, if you have any questions, put it in the chat and I will go to the next slide, but I'll pause for, you know, just uh, a few seconds to see if there's any questions. So the next thing we're going to talk about is um, assessment in CTI. Um, so we kind of went through the whole, we went through the whole kind of big picture process, and now we're kind of going back and looking at different components of it a little more um, in detail. Um, so the CTI assessment, um, this is kind of after engagement and probably during pre-CTI, we're following the phases. Um, and so I explain the assessment to people and basically the way I do it is to say, um, you know, I have this assessment and people, you know, kind of just like flinch at that word sometimes. But so what I say to them, sometimes I'll just say, well, it's kind of just a form I have and it helps me understand, you know, kind of what um, are all the things that you're, you know, dealing with in, in your life so I can kind of understand your situation as well as I can, because um, hopefully that will help me know um, what you need or how our program can be helpful. And I also tell them right up front, um, if there's something that feels personal or private, you absolutely don't have to answer a question. And I want to say that at the beginning, because if there's anything about that that is like going to, you know, be really triggering to somebody or, you know, touch on something that's traumatic or just a very sensitive topic, I want them to be able to just know ahead of time that all they have to do is not say, well, not today. I don't really feel like talking about that today. And I'll just move right along. Um, and it's kind of nice to say it at the beginning and not right before you ask a sensitive question. Um, and I think the main um, areas that people have um, the most sensitivity around answering are um, some are mental illness because there's so much stigma. 
substance use disorders, also because there's stigma and also because people get blamed a lot and found fault with for having those kinds of problems. And also there's lots of people trying to, to stop having those problems. And also they could be concerned that they won't be eligible for the program or that you are going to share that information with somebody and they are you know, that is in violation of a rule somewhere or something like that. And then also um, around legal stuff, because people think, oh, that's going to, you know, bar me from getting something. And so often when I get to that part, I'll say, um, you know, any, you know, I have no problem with anything. This is, this is really just because I want to understand things that might be a barrier for you. Um, and that's what this is. That's the only reason I'm asking um and you can also tell me that it's you know that you don't feel like talking about that now so along the as you're doing this assessment if you notice like a problem that you think oh i know what to do about that go ahead and mention it you know you could say we should come back to that because i have an idea about that um so you're kind of you know conveying a little bit of optimism and and hope as as you go through this um you can always when you're doing this report building and assessing their needs Sort of just validate the difficulties that they're facing, or you can also validate um, how hard they're working. Um, and I think you know practically everybody can relate to that, so it's kind of like a nice, safe thing to do to um, you know sort of appreciate that about them about themselves or their situation. And um, and you want to convey some amount of optimism, optimism, and also balance it with being realistic. So um, to kind of show that, like these are um, these are difficult problems, and we will work on addressing them, and you know, and be optimistic about the things you can be optimistic about without kind of overpromising. But it's not really helpful to say, oh my gosh, you have all these really terrible problems. I have no idea what, you know, what the hell we're going to do about these. You know, you want to sort of show that you've got some hope about this. And to also make sure that you kind of are looking for their strengths um, and what they have going for them in their life or what they have going for them in their personality. These are all the different potential areas to um, assess. So, um, so I, I'm happy to share our assessment form. And there's a lot here, but my form is only, it's like five pages long and it's not super intensive, um, but it does cover a lot. So, you know, obviously getting people's demographics and all the different ways to contact them, understanding their housing needs, uh, their financial situation, what other providers they have, do they have benefits or do they need benefits, what supports do they have in their life, um, physical concerns, mental health concerns, substance use concerns, um, what medications are they taking, do they have any legal history or current court involvement, um, and we always ask about personal documents because um, Basically, if you're gonna be helping people eventually, they're probably gonna need an ID or a social security card or a birth certificate um, and a copy of benefits letter. So, uh, you know, we like to do that kind of right up front with people because if they don't have it, you wanna help them get it because you don't want that to be the thing that gets in the way of getting something that they need if they have to wait two weeks 
to get an ID or whatever. Um, do they have insurance of any kind? Um, are there other agencies that they're working with? And if they, if there are, to say, would you like me to touch base with those people and um, introduce myself and let them know that um, you know we're uh, working with you. Also, finding out what they do for transportation, um, if they have jobs or if they're interested in in jobs. Um, same with education. And then for ours, we do include um, a, diagnos a diagnosis um, because that's sort of, you know, required for our program, but it's not, you know, you can see it's just one item of many. That's not the thing I'm spending a ton of time talking about. So um, food isn't on here, but I think food is one, you know, kind of what we're looking at is all this information, but paying attention to things that are social determinants of health um, um, areas. So, you know, food, housing, transportation. Um, if it's a family, you want to ask about um, uh, child care services um, or, you know, daycare or whatever, if you're working with families. And then especially in CKI, you want to assess their connections to uh, resources. So those could be formal, you know, connections, you know, what healthcare providers do they have, what agencies, institutions, you know, so they can be everything from Social Security Administration to Department of Social Services to shelter to um, some church pantry, you know, just whatever it is that they've got a connection to. Um, it's helpful to know about that because then you know what they have going for them and where the gaps might be. And then if they have informal connections, so if they've got somebody get gives them rides or um, a good friend, or they have a phone relationship with their mom or whatever it is, or places they hang out, um, churches, drop-in centers, you know, whatever it is, you want to find out what all the connections they are. I think the thing about um, individuals who are homeless and have mental health conditions is often they don't have the kind of informal connections that we would like to see that people end up often sort of alone and without family support um, but it's it's good to know what support people do have and then also you know what they might want to have or might need and then looking for broken connections what um you know what's working or what was a connection they have and and why it was lost and can it be repaired or reconnected and then also asking about unwanted connections are there things that people are connected to that aren't helpful for them or they don't want or they want to avoid um, in some way so a big part of cti is understanding all of their needs but since it's so much of a linking service you want to understand what they're linked to as well as possible because part of what you're going to be trying to do is get some of these connections in place and especially ones that can be um, long-term. Um, so let's see, um, so let's go, David, if you could go, if we can go back to the rooms, everybody got to talk about Linda a little bit. So maybe we can go back and, and just for a shorter period of time, try to come up with a list in your group of what seems um, the most, in, you know, what you think is the most important thing to Linda, and then maybe other things that you think are important. And, um, and then maybe see what seems easy and what seems, 
you know, what are some easy things to do? And maybe what are some hard things to do based on what you know about her? And then maybe if somebody from the group can take notes and report back. Um, so assessment of needs and prioritizing them and, and you notice what strengths that she has um, that add that in as well. Um, all right, let's see. I guess we're ready to start again. Um, I'm just going to check out the um, chat and see what's there. Yeah, somebody else mentioned like hygiene and the cat for Linda. Mm -hmm. And those are probably things like helping somebody that might be a little easier than figuring out mental health or treatment or income. Um, so I was just thinking about the, um, the, the question um, that I can't remember who asked it. It was such a good question um, about, you know, what do you do when people are asking for things that you, uh, you, you can't give them or they're asking you to do things that are not things that are you consider the scope of your work. Um, and so um, I have a, a friend who is a, a teacher of little kids. She teaches like third grade or something like that. And she says what she has to do all day long is tell her students no. Um, you know, they can't do this, they can't do that, they can't have this, they can't have that. And, um, and what she says, she says to them every single time is um, no and I love you. <laughs> And uh, I just thought that was such a, a, a sweet thing um, because, um, you know, why not pair no with, and I care about you. And, uh, you know, um, that's not something I'm gonna say to my clients, but gotta have the spirit of that, of, of um, no, I can't do these things for you, or no, I can't give you this thing, and I care about you. Um, and, and the other, thing about that is when we do, when we give people, um, um, we're orienting to the program and we have this little um, thing that we pass out to people. That's one of the things is we kind of have a little paragraph about what you can expect from us and what we can expect from you. And we don't have a lot that we expect from them, but it is things like, um, you know, stay in touch with us and understand that we are trying hard to solve these problems, but um, you know, there is, um, you know, what I tell people right away is we don't have funding for housing, but we don't have any special access to housing, but we work with people in our community who care about housing and we are trying to solve housing problems for people. So you kind of like don't set anybody up for false expectations about what you can do or what you can't do. Um, so I'll get calls from family members that say, do I have a bed, you know, and I'm like, I'm not a, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, they misunderstand what the, the service is. So we try to be clear with people what they can expect of us and not like we don't answer our phone, you know, after like, you know, we're not going to answer our phones on the weekend. And if you have a crisis, here's the crisis services. So we're not a 24 seven service. We want people to utilize the community crisis services um, and that and that sort of thing. Um, any other comments before I go to the next 
section of slides. All right, well, I really appreciate all these uh, questions and comments. Um, so we're going to go just through some of the various CTI principles and CTI tasks. And that'll probably be all we do today. So there's core principles of CTI that has a recovery orientation. There are various uh, number of case management skills and interventions. Um, there's being trauma informed and you know, housing first isn't on here, but that's, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of principles and then lots of coordination of services. So if we think about the principles um, that guide CTI, they are the right to self-determination, being trauma-informed, having a recovery orientation, housing first, equity and advocacy. There's a lot of the clients that we work with are uh, victims of um, social um, inequities that are built into our systems. So we want to advocate for um, equity as much as possible, and we want to be relationship-based. So those are kind of the main principles of CTI. And then the CTI tasks, the things that we're doing are we are linking people to things and connecting them things. We are problem solving. We are working on focused goals. We're maintaining engagement. We're doing this time limited thing with decreasing intensity. We're doing an outreach and engagement. So I didn't read that in the proper order, but those are sort of the, there's like the principles and then the things that we're doing. So this is just a very free write. So, um, so get a, you know, use your phone or get a scrap of paper and write down um, in just a minute, sort of all the different roles that you play in your life. So I have some examples here that um, probably apply to some of you. You're a friend, you're an employee, you're a baseball player, you're a Sunday school teacher, just kind of all the various roles that you can think of that you have in your life. Okay, so now the question is, um, did any of you put down, um, and you don't have to share this, this is sort of just a theoretical question. Did you put in there that you were a, um, uh, a patient or mental health patient? or a substance use client. Um, and my hunch is that most of you did not, even though you may have a doctor, you may even have a psychiatrist, you may have uh, you know, um, a therapist or substance use counselor, you know, because we're all human beings, we all have things going on in our life and we all get, you know, many of us get help for those things, but we don't think about that as our main roles in our life. That's the thing that we do so we can do as well as we want to in our roles. And sometimes what happens in, in service organizations is we get really focused on our client's role with us as a client or a consumer or a patient. And even though we're trying to really kind of be respectful and client-centered, it can be really hard to get out of that um, view of things. Um, so, but that's the goal. So if we think about, you know, kind of what I'm saying here in terms of how we might view our clients, 
Um, if I'm in a mental health organization, the thing that I'm understandably playing, paying the most attention to in some ways is what is their mental health condition and what are we doing about it? And so what happens though, when I'm doing that is I might be paying less attention than I should be to all these other things that matter in the person's life, you know, their friendships, their work, their school, um, their spiritual beliefs, uh, their family, you know, their kind of how they feel like they fit into their community, their sense of belongingness, you know, all those kinds of things. And those things are, um, very, very important. So it's, it's, it's important for us to try to, you know, keep all those things in mind. Um, and that a more sort of balanced view would be, yes, you know, this person has a mental health condition and there's all these other things that are actually um, as important or more important to them. So if we're thinking about recovery orientation and strength-based focus, this is kind of the view that we're, you know, thinking about. And um, if we're, oh, and, and, and recovery is defined by the person, not by us. So it's really just like kind of what does recovery mean to us, you know, in our own recovery and what does it mean to the individuals that we're working with? So that's kind of basically this recovery and strength-based focus. And then I just want to say a little bit about motivational interviewing. I'm guessing many of you are trained in this. Um, and I think this is a great little cartoon. Um, this doctor says to this patient, stop overeating, stop drinking, stop staying out late, stop fighting, stop worrying, stop eating sweets, stop gambling. And then he gets home and his wife says, what did the doctor say? And he says, I don't know, I stopped listening. And this is probably how um, we might feel if this happened, you know, to us. There's probably no amount of advice that somebody could give us about how to improve our lives, but it's going to go in one ear and out the other if all we're doing is just listening to somebody else's opinion about what we should be doing. And so motivational interviewing is more about like a person's internal sense about what they want to do and why they want to do it and when they feel ready to do it and, and all that. Um, and then there's this little kind of funny cartoon about being strength-based. Uh, I just thought I'd personally uh, come by and congratulate you on your accomplishment. No one has ever quit smoking 17,000 times in one year before. Um, and so just really looking at the um, positive sides of things when we're working with people and making sure that we notice those things. Um, and so I think, you know, I'd be curious to hear other people's perspectives. So motivational interviewing obviously has really good evidence, really good um, uh, strategy to use with people. In the beginning, when I'm doing CTI with people, I'm not that interested in trying to increase people's motivation at that point. What I'm really trying to do is um, help people have environments and supports that will improve their, the possibility of you know, having a higher quality of life. And so I don't know if this is the best analogy, but if I have a two-year-old to my home where I don't have any little kids anymore, and there's plugs that are exposed everywhere and there's sharp objects at eye level and there's just like nothing but 
you know, laptops and books around, then a two-year-old is not going to be doing well in my home and I'm going to be chasing them around and trying to figure out how to get them to behave. But if I have in my home, it's safe and there's things there that are interesting to them and they can kind of do those things without getting into uh, danger, then the two-year-old's going to do a whole lot better. And I'm not trying to say our clients are like children, they're adults, but the point is that we can do that. We want to try to make changes in people's environments and life structures that help them do better. Um, and so to me, at least early in CTI, um, that is more important than trying to sort of engage people in change talk. And if that happens, you know, then that's, that's great. And, you know, it's really nice to support that. And we don't want to try to support things that are not going well or sort of maladaptive in some ways or unhealthy in some ways. Um, but that's sort of, a, you know, we can maybe have a conversation about that, but that's kind of um, my view on at least early CTI. However, what we can do is understand that it's really normal for people to have ambivalence about all kinds of things, housing, treatment, um, working with you, recovery, all kinds of things, family. And sometimes people don't really know what ambivalence is, you know, that it's like having mixed feelings. It's like feeling two opposite ways at the same time. Um, and so if you can explain that to people and wait for it to sort of come up naturally and say like, well, that's completely normal. You know, uh, you may have mixed feelings about that. That's really normal. Um, and when you go to the doctor, you might have mixed feelings about what they say, or, you know, try to um, uh, look for those um, ambivalent reactions and normalize them and predict them and don't try to answer those questions for them. Um, but they really are often kind of dilemmas for people. Um, I'm going to pause there and see if there's any um, questions or thoughts about that. And David, I can't really see much except for the slide. And so I'm going to just pause and see if there's any uh, chats or questions or, or um, you know, just comments about any of this so far. No, it looks like we're all good. There, there was a little bit of dialogue about um... Uh, about the vignettes uh, amongst the participants, but otherwise, yeah, no questions or, or comments about the, the recent material. Okay, all right, fantastic. Um, and then a couple of you mentioned harm reduction, so that's um, obviously a you know hugely useful um, orientation to have. And you know, as many of you probably know, harm reduction was um, had its origins in substance treatment. Um, and I think was first coined when um, clean needles were being disseminated um, as a way to help people um, not be um, infected with HIV, um, for example, during the 80s. Um, so that is like very clear, specific harm reduction approach. Um, but we all are probably engaging in harm reduction all the time that we wear our seat belts and we um, get a small bag of potato chips at the store instead of really big bag of potato chips at the store. Or um, we, you know, so we can kind of make choices that um, 
um, help sort of minimize harm and improve quality of life in small ways. Um, and so we can, you know, and we might do, I think we'll wait till um, tomorrow to do this, but we can engage in harm reduction with our clients in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. And, and, and I'll give an example. Let me see if this is my last slide on harm reduction now. Um, so here's an example that just happened to me um, a couple weeks ago. Um, we have a client who recently got housed and she's been homeless for many, many years. And she um, has been a victim of interpersonal violence in the past more than a couple times. And in this apartment, she ended up um, having somebody stay with her for a while. And then he really hurt her very badly. And she ended up in the emergency room and um, pressing charges on this guy who went to jail for a little while and then got out of jail waiting for trial and was in the shelter. And we knew was trying to reach her or reach her friends and kind of insert himself back in, in her life. And so we were thinking, you know, what we know about her is that when she drinks a lot, she has a harder time figuring out what's safe, how to keep herself safe and protect herself from, from danger. And, and she sort of knows this, but if she's drinking, she doesn't really feel like telling us because, you know, she she's probably, you know, rightfully uh, concern that people will like try to talk her out of doing that or get her to go to detox or something like that. And so when I was talking with her, um, you know, I said, um, let's call her Mary. I said, Mary, um, you know, he is, you know, this guy is at the shelter. I made sure she knew. Um, and then we talked about, you know, what are the various ways that you can um, make sure that you're safe and make sure she had all the phone numbers that she could call and um, and we also talked about her habit of you know she'd like to leave her door open because then she can kind of see out so we talked about you know that there might be this might be a time where it would be safer to keep her door locked and what did she think about that and how did you know did she think that was a good idea and then I was thinking about that she would be potentially uh, likely to relapse and also likely to not tell anybody and then also be likely to be more in harm's way as a result. So I talked with her. So I just talked with her pretty candidly about that and said, you know, in the past that you've, um, you know, when you've had relapse, it's harder for you to, you know, kind of figure out how to, you know, deal with a tricky problem in the moment. And I said, and I'm not trying to tell you not to drink or to tell you how much to drink. But what I would like to talk to you about, is there a way that if you are drinking, um, we can still support you in being safe? Um, and so then we just kind of came up with a plan where she could um, text people if, um, you know, if she was drinking or drinking a lot so that we could maybe, um, you know, sort of talk with our, police department, social workers, and they could maybe drive by or because she likes them and go say hello without trying to get her to do anything different. So that was um, kind of a unique harm reduction approach, but just thinking about what's, 
you know, what's actually might work here to minimize the danger. So I think harm reduction is, there's probably lots of different ways that, um, that we can do that and deal with imperfect situations to make them safer. I mean, there's lots of ways you can make a tent, a campsite safer. There's different ways you can make behavior safer. Um, so that's a big part of CTI as well. And I'm gonna skip this case, but we might come back to it. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, I feel like we've, I don't know that we have time for another um, activity. So I'm gonna go over one other thing and then I think we can pause and talk and then call it a, um, a day. Um, so this is about case management um, interventions or things that you would do in a person's environment to, um, you know, like link them to something or, you know, do this kind of linking connecting function that we have in TPI. So the basic principle of that is that we really want to encourage independence and respect independence, um, that we understand that levels of need vary over time. And sometimes people need more help and sometimes they need less. And in CTI, one want to start by erring on the side of providing more support if the person will, you know, allow that and be okay with that, not less, um, because it's easy to back up. Um, but when you're providing more support, things are more likely to happen. And also you'll learn more about a client's sort of capabilities and strengths. And, and so that's good. So that doesn't mean you have to do things for them, but you're going to just be there with them as you do these things, especially initially. Um, and then as you go on, you will start to have under, a better understanding of what people's skills are, what their need for support is, and increase their, you know, help them sort of increase their capabilities, increase their um, independence and, and take personal responsibility for things that are part of their life. And usually that helps people feel competent and, and strong and good. Um, so there's four different levels of intervention when you're working with people. And so we'll go one, two, three, four. One is the least intensive, four is the most intensive. Um, so the first one is look for what's already working. So if you're noticing that people have areas of strength, then you just wanna reinforce that, complement them, help them see that strength for themselves. Sometimes people don't even know they have strength. So if I'm talking to Linda, I might say something about her, you know, that she's really likable and people, um, you know, like to be around her because she's so, you know, um, uh, like funny and personable. And, and uh, I might talk about her strengths and how well she takes care of her cat, um, things like that. And then you can build on those skills. So if people have skills in one area, they can often use those skills to expand them and generalize them and use them in different scenarios. So if Linda's really good at talking, at like being really supportive of her homeless friend on the street, she might be really good at talking with, um, um, with other people on her own behalf. And so that might be a way to kind of build on that skill. And then looking for bright spots, which basically means if something's going well, try to figure out why it's going well so you can um, replicate it as, as much as possible and figure out like what's making this thing go well in this person's life. So then the second one is um, a little more um, 
you know, a little stronger level of intervention, which is when you are providing information to people or coaching to people or um, guidance um, for people. And so that's when you would be giving people information or instructions about the, you know, when to do it, where to do it, who to do it, how to do it, et cetera. Um, thinking through it um, ahead of time, sort of this anticipatory guidance being let's talk through it so I can sort of talk with you about all the things that might happen or troubleshoot what, um, you know, might happen when you go there. You might even want to role play it with somebody if you think it might be challenging for them to figure out how to do something, go through the, you know, what if this happens, what if that happens? And obviously the more complicated something is or challenging something is, you know, if all they're doing is going to, you know, go buy some aspirin, you don't need to maybe do very much of this. Um, but if it's something that's complicated, you might want to um, do that. And then, um, and then just basic problem solving strategies of just, you know, figuring out the pros and cons of decisions and listing all the steps that are involved. Because sometimes I think what happens is people oversimplify things that are difficult. So if somebody says, well, all I have to do is go over there and you know, apply for Medicaid or whatever it is, you know, North Carolina is different than California, probably. Um, that's, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. So it's like, well, you have to make sure you have this documentation. When you get there, you might have to wait for a long time. And if you have to wait for a long time and you're going to miss lunch, um, then that might be an issue. So, you know, kind of break it down so that people know exactly what to expect. And then you can always check back and see what worked or what didn't work um, so that you can, um, you know, kind of plan for the future. And I'm going to give some examples of these as well. Um, and so the next one, and this is the one that you're doing mostly, especially in early CTI, is you're doing things with people. So going to appointments, making phone calls together, filling out applications together, you know, reading, reading things together that they need to read, um, considering options, problem solving, you know, that's nice to have somebody brainstorm with you. And then doing things that facilitate building independent living skills. I think somebody in this group talked, you know, that that's a big part of um, your job, um, might've been Nancy. Um, and so, when you're, when people are just first living in a new apartment, there's a lot of things that um, um, that they're going to need to do and that they may be rusty on. And so doing some of that stuff together um, at the beginning um, can, be, can be really helpful. And then the most intense thing is doing things for our clients. So I think this is something that, you know, we should do as little as possible, but sometimes it's important to do it um, so making appointments, filling out applications because they can't do it or, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, going to pick things up for them, accessing emergency resources. Sometimes we're giving people transportation. Sometimes we're advocating for their needs because they're not really able um, to, to do that for some reason. Um, Let's see, I am gonna pause now because I feel like I've been listening to my own voice for a, a long time and this might be a good um, place to stop um, and get questions. We're, tomorrow we're gonna finish up that section and talk about 
um, examples or like how you figure out what's too much and what's too little, right? Because some of us are the kind of people that help too much, you know? It's like you want to like, you know, you got this big heart and you want to like help a lot and then you overdo it and you do things for people that they can do themselves. Um, and, and some of us tend to um, do, the, do the opposite, think, well, they should be able to do it or they can do it or we overestimate their skills or, you know, so we have different set of beliefs about that. Um, and so we probably all kind of know who we are <laughs> or it might depend on the situation, you know, it might depend on the, on the individual client. Um, so any comments or questions about any of that so far, motivational interviewing, harm reduction, recovery, or just sort of case management um, levels of intervention? Yeah, so Nancy, you're saying you try to help your um, clients be independent and that's you know absolutely the goal. I mean, if we're keeping our eye on the prize, it's really, you know, how do we help people not need us anymore? How do we help people become their own case managers, you know, so they don't need us to, to do this stuff. Um, and I'm looking at this other, what I like about harm reduction is we can assist clients by working together to reduce, um, such as if they drink five bottles a week, we can try to get down to four, right? Just like these incremental um, things. Mm -hmm. My, <laughs> that's great, Heather. Put yourself out of a job. <laughs> Absolutely. There's always going to be somebody else who who needs you, um, but that's exactly right. And um, it's really, you know, it's it's not it's it's no fun to be the person who always needs help. You know, I mean, most of us want to um, feel like we've got competencies and know how to do stuff and that we're independent. David, can you think of anything that I, you know, left out or, um, you know, things that are relevant to um, your area that relate to these things? No, I, I think you, I mean, I think you covered a lot of it and um, it seems like a lot of the participants are able to relate it to the unique work and culture of LA. So I appreciate everyone's flexibility and sort of reframing some of the things that, um, uh, that were shared to our unique context. So, um, so yeah, that's really helpful. And I, it's also helpful to hear different perspectives like yours, Janice, from, from a very different part of the country. Um, again, I, those, uh, it, it's really helpful to see how some of the services are um, in other places. There's a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. There's always there's always similarities, you know, I think, you know, because uh, I imagine that if you dropped into, you know, my work or I dropped into your work, we would say, oh, yeah, this is, <laughs> I know this, <laughs> I know this kind of problem. Um, so um, hopefully you'll be able to get access to the slides. Um, so 
And um, just to add to that, I'm going to post a link. Um, this should take you to a Google Drive where I put all of the handouts as well as the PowerPoint. Um, it may be, um, it depends on people's organizations. Oftentimes when we try to email slides, they bounce back because of the size of the slides. So sometimes doing it this way is a little bit better. Um, they are also up on our website. So the same place that you want to register for the training on PMHP's website, you'll be able to access the slides there. Um, and, and, and I don't believe all the handouts are there. So using the Google Drive is probably the best way to go. Fantastic. And on Thursday, we'll, um, you know, we'll be working a little bit more with some documents um, and stuff as we go along. And on Thursday, we'll return to this part to do a few examples um, and, you know, maybe some more small group stuff. And then we'll kind of just keep building from there. So um, I guess we can, this is a good stopping point, I think. So I'll just see you all. Um, David, I'll stay on for a few minutes, but I'll see you all on Thursday in the morning at nine. And I very much appreciate your time and attention. I know you all have busy jobs. So thank you so much.